We're looking down the barrel of a long, cold winter. From low wages to soaring rents, battle lines are being drawn between working people and everyone else. Some politicians took advantage of the pandemic to help landlords and big business. Now, ordinary people are being asked to bear the brunt of our economic woes. But there have been moments of brightness over the past few years where the truth has shone through. We have a choice about how we run the economy. As we face the biggest squeeze in living standards since the 50s, who is actually trying to build an economy that works for everyone? From strikes for better pay to campaigns against new fossil fuels, people across the UK are demanding something better. In this mini-series of the New Economics podcast, we'll discover how our economy has been run over the past few years and look at the key battlegrounds for those fighting to change the rules. BPs is collecting record profits, right? These train companies essentially have their profits guaranteed. And workers know this. People have paid year after year after year far more than was necessary so that a small number of people who have a lot of money in these firms to enable them to extract billions. It's the big corporate landlords with whole estates really that have managed to benefit from this financially. Really what they together represent is a wholesale attack on all of our rights, but particularly an attack which will most sharply impact racialized communities, whether that's migrants, whether that's black and brown protesters, or whether that's the GRT community through the measures in the Policing Act. Over the last five episodes, we've looked at how the UK is being being torn apart. Our economy is built on huge inequalities between working people and big business, between families and fossil fuel giants, between tenants and landlords, and between marginalised groups and law enforcement. But are such massive divisions in our society inevitable? Can we share the wealth hoarded by the rich? And what do we need to do to build a better future? What we need for a thriving, functioning economy is for everyone to have access to life's essential, everyone to have access to affordable housing, to affordable healthcare, to affordable childcare. Address the fundamental root cause of this problem, which is that we are highly dependent at the moment in the UK's energy system on gas and oil. And that means scaling up the abundant renewable energy that we have access to. And the alternative is asking big companies, you know, really profitable energy companies and the wealthy to pay a bit more in tax to ensure that we have the public services that we need. Welcome to the last episode in this special mini-series of the New Economics Podcast. This week, we're asking, how do we change the rules of our economy? I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay with us. So this week, I'm really pleased to be joined by two very special guests. Firstly, Jeevan Sander, Head of Economics at the New Economics Foundation. Hi, Jeevan. Hi, it's wonderful to be here. So exciting to have you. Is it your first foray into the, the New Economics pod? It is my first foray into the New Economics pod. I'm hoping it goes well. Everyone's nice to me. Well, we'll see. No promises. No promises. Uh, thank you so much for being with us. And I'm also pleased to be joined by the brilliant political economist and author of The Case for a Green New Deal, Anne Pettifor. Hi, Anne. Hello. Hi. Good to be here. 
yeah. Certainly not your first um, first foray into the into the pod. Thank you, returning friend. Okay, so let's jump in because we have lots to discuss. So, inequality has has been a problem in the UK for decades. We heard a bit in the intro about how this is playing out, um, but I want to kind of look a bit at, uh, look at the history of of the problem, kind of first and foremost. So maybe Jeevan, if we come to you first with kind of a question of how we ended up with a kind of rentier economy, which we've discussed on here before. Um, and what problems does it cause? Yeah, so, you know, part of this is actually, you know, you go back to the 1970s and, and before that, and you had kind of good manufacturing jobs in factories across the country, admittedly mostly for men who left school, but also kind of that's where they were. And then actually in the 1980s, like technological change and trade changed the structure of our economies. This wasn't just a UK thing that we saw. What it did was it destroyed these mid-pay manufacturing jobs I mean, that actually where the high paid jobs were, we're now in cities where graduates were like working together. You know, now you think about KPMG and the consultancies in London. And on the other side of that, kind of a huge kind of expanse of low pay service jobs. So, you know, waiters and hairdressers, et cetera. And so we saw this divide in the economy rather than having high, mid and low paid jobs. We had high and low paid jobs kind of separated with high paid jobs concentrated in major cities. And that structural change took place across nations. Of course, in the UK in particular, we had like a government in the 1980s that also implemented loads of policies that further kind of led to even more inequality than that, right? You know, the big bank deregulation, which I know Anne will know a lot more about than I will, certainly uh, cuts the top income tax rate as well. North Sea oil and gas, of course, used to fund that. And then that kind of just kept kept going. That was the structure. You know, New Labour then comes in in 97 and they redistribute down to the bottom. They reduce child poverty by a huge extent. But on the other side, inequality itself remains stable because actually what they're doing, if you like, is they're redistributing down, but forces pushing inequality up are really still there. And then finally, I suppose, in this kind of latest period, especially the post-financial crisis period, where there's been very little growth, you know, over the last 20 years, uh, before the pandemic, sorry, house price up by over 100%, wages only up by 20%. You're really just not building anywhere near enough homes where we need them. And also very low interest rates and a huge amount of printing of money by the bank going into asset prices. And so actually people were you know, sitting on an asset that made them rich. The extent now that actually when we look at kind of you know what we think of as being class, you know, the old view of class of being someone who, you know, lives in a town that has a factory or whatever is, you know, generally speaking, a form of manufacturing worker. That ideal has actually ended. Like the new working class is, is very different. And one thing that really kind of defines what class you sit in is actually, do you own a house or not? It's the wealth you own rather than the income you get, because that's what's really beginning to determine how well you're doing. And that's kind of been the picture of inequality in the, in the UK, certainly for a long time. And of course, that then led uh, to political ruptures that we've seen, you know, Brexit here in 2016, Trump, of course, in the same year. And the final thing I would say is also that it, it also led to divided political coalitions, something we don't really talk about, which is that because those in, in high paying jobs were kind of, you know, a powerful electoral force and still are, they don't necessarily want more, you know, huge amounts of expansive welfare state payments for those on low incomes. And those on low incomes generally just aren't a big enough group to make a difference by themselves. And so they've kind of lost out on that side as well. It's actually it's quite a good case, by the way, that's a quite good economic case for PR that tends to lead to more equal outcomes. So that's kind of, you know, the history of inequality up at this point. And now, of course, uh, government decisions by this budget and ones before it that massively helped the rich and, you know, 
led to a situation where we have 2.6 million kids going hungry. So um, not great. Not great indeed. I mean, Anne, I know, as Jeevan alluded to there, you literally wrote the book on this. Um, and, you know, you've you've mentioned many times before how the global economy is kind of run by a small number of actors who manage the system in their own vested interest to the detriment of wider society. And it certainly seems that we're seeing that on a national scale here play out. So I'm, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on why this is such a feature of the global economy. I know people are probably heard this before, but I am passionate about understanding the source of inequality as being international. We think of our economy as, you know, localised effectively, you know, bounded by the sea, this island. We're actually deeply, deeply integrated into a global financial system based on capital mobility. And we have inequality because we now have remote markets deciding on the value of labor, the value of money, the value of commodities. You know, the energy crisis we have at the moment is because speculative markets on Wall Street and in Chicago speculate on the price of oil and gas and gamble on that. And they piled in to the commodity markets in the end of last year, but definitely by February of this year, because they could suddenly see there was going to be an invasion and and the price of oil. They did this also with the war in Iraq and so on. And what they do then is massively inflate the price. And the impact of higher energy prices is felt down here at home by people trying to keep warm, leaky old Victorian housing stock. So the point is this, that this sense that these global markets really decide, and in particular, they decide on the value of money. This international system is now so well developed, this whole financial system, I think it's actually on the point of implosion, but it's so well developed that now making money from money simply by speculating is a much easier thing to do than, for goodness sake, making money by investing in the land and employing labor for any kind of economic activity. It's far too troublesome. It takes far too long. So what's happening is that the financialization of the economy means that you'd be crazy if you thought you should use whatever surplus or any savings you might have to invest in something like a wind farm or to because that takes time to build you, you know you might have to build it out and see there's risks you've got to employ people they could go on strike they could demand higher wages well you'd have all that hassle when actually all you need to do is a bit of speculation but the problem with speculation is this that you've got to often borrow money to have a quick gamble right to borrow money you need collateral and there just ain't enough collateral in the world. And collateral means assets, you know. So property is an asset. Um, a work of art is an asset. A racehorse is an asset. A debt, a bond is an asset. So what people do that have all this money, they've got to find some collateral which will enable them to leverage that collateral and, and borrow extra money. And there's just a finite amount of property. There's a finite number of horses. There's a finite number of... <laughs> Even there's a finite amount of debt, basically. And so there is a shortage of assets. And what that has done, as Jeevan rightly explains, is to inflate the price and the value of assets. So what happens is you sit on your butt and you 
buy a London property and you collect the rent from that property or you sit on your butt and you wait for it to increase in value and then you collect the, the surplus and you do this all effortlessly, why on earth would you invest in jobs or in labour? And so this is the new economy that we have. In the first episode of the miniseries, we talked a lot about neoliberalism and how there's often a mischaracterization of neoliberalism as, as you know, being about um, a small state, when in fact, as we know, neoliberalism, you know, at its very heart is, is actually about a kind of expansion of the state into new areas, arguably, and uh, especially when it comes to kind of preserving market rule. So thinking about the, the changes that have been brought in by the government in recent, in recent weeks and months, you know, they've spent an enormous amount freezing energy bills, for example, and the last PM brought in brutal restrictions on protests and migrants. Um, so, Jeevan, coming back to you, on this question of neoliberalism and I guess a broader kind of economic ideology, is the state really shrinking? Is it expanding into new areas? And I guess, does it matter? I think, I think it, does, it does matter. I mean, this government clearly wants a smaller state and has wanted one. I mean, to be fair, we've, apart from the Johnson kind of, I don't know, interregnum, it's always been the kind of view of, of what this country or rather what this this conservative government wants. So I think it's it's what they've wanted. But clearly the problem they've always faced is is the fact that the people who want this are not those in the middle voters or kind of decisive voters. You know, even before this moment, like before COVID, the NHS was in crisis. You know, those people who are swing voters in elections are also those who realise the public realm is falling apart. And this ideological kind of ideal of what's in Britannia Unchained, you know, even going so far to like a private healthcare system, is something people do not want. Like people like public services for them. More broadly as well, there's another point to make, which is also that benefits that only go to the poor are also poor benefits. And so be very careful of like, especially sometimes see voices on the progressive side of the spectrum, basically try and design a system where like you're you're really progressive, you're only giving money to people who absolutely kind of you think need it. But when you do that, um, look, you can draw a line on a graph, but you can't draw a political coalition around that. You, know, you have to think about more about universality if you want to have a buy-in across the spectrum. So this is where this government, you know, wants to go. And also like, we kind of have to have a better answer as opposed to being like, that's really bad. I want to pivot to talk about climate um, and the climate crisis, because we've not explicitly talked about it, although, of course, it's been a, um, a thread throughout. So this summer, we experienced dangerously hot weather in the UK. The climate crisis barely features on the government's agenda, but they do seem to think that private companies are the solution. And I, and I had the, the pleasure of interviewing Adrian Buller recently about her new book, The Value of a Whale, which kind of really looks into very much this. The idea that sadly, it seems the direction we're moving in, um, in terms of the climate crisis and being pushed by the government is, is just that it's private companies being the solution. So, and starting with you, what role, if any, do you see big business playing in, in tackling climate change? So I think um, also just to respond to your earlier question, you know, the role of the state here is to de-risk the private sector largely. I mean, the fact is taxpayers are there to protect. So at the moment, we're protecting Shell and and all the other big companies from the losses they would make if consumers defaulted on their energy payments over the winter. So the taxpayer is brought in to protect their interests. They carry on making profits and issuing dividends, right, as of normal. Plus, they have this massive subsidy from the state. So the state's largely doing that. And that's exactly what the private sector wants the state to do relative to the climate. Please, we are willing to plant trees in the Sahel 
but can you please guarantee that we make no losses whatsoever on those tree planting projects that we invest in? And I think, you know, so the, the, the state has been harnessed to serve the interests of these big corporations. And I think we're terribly mistaken in following the sort of Mark Carney model, you know, that says the private sector can do this. They can't do this. It's too expensive. It would cost them too much. This is like going to war. You know, the private sector can't fight our wars for us, no matter how much they might profit from them. They cannot actually fight those wars. The state has to intervene here. And the state should begin by, first of all, stopping the lies. I find the term net zero so offensive because it was invented at the Paris 2015 COP uh, in which the corporations talked about net zero as a way of deferring the reduction in emissions to some future date. So when we have future new technology, when when it'd be cheaper for the next generation to finance it, et cetera, et cetera. And since 1990 and the first of the UN's IPCC reports, emissions have just risen inexorably. There's been absolutely no dent in emissions, you know. So I think the state could begin by telling the truth of what's really happening and by actually making us really face reality. But the state is not doing that yet. The state is still in the business of protecting the private sector from the shocks of climate breakdown. And climate breakdown, as you say, is already already with us. That's a good kind of opportunity to pivot to talking about the uh, Labour Party manifesto and offers that have come out around in, in recent weeks around the conference. And it seems like some of the biggest steps forward that we saw were indeed on climate. We had pledges for a kind of great British energy company and move to renewables and all these fantastic things coming out um, around climate that I know folks are kind of celebrating, as well as some exciting things coming through on the NHS and other areas of uh, social infrastructure. I guess my question for both of you is how excited or hopeful um, or optimistic are you about the pledges? And do you think that they go far enough? Do you think that in 2024, we might be having, uh, we might not need to have this podcast anymore because it'll all be sorted? Well, I'm excited. I think it's certainly true. It's an economic growth model that is certainly the right one we should be having, right? We should be going towards one in which we do not emit carbon. And also, you know, the problem I was referring to earlier about how technological change is that is kind of dividing jobs, high and low pay, which is one of the huge rise of inequality we've seen, actually also an opportunity to kind of to counteract that. So if you start to invest in towns and places across the country, you're stopping the geographic centralization of of economic growth within London and also creating jobs in the middle that could, people can hopefully have the skills to do so. And of course, um, also for our own exports as well. So there's like a new economic growth model that has begun to set out, and like something I am like very excited about. In terms of the podcast, I mean, yes, because there's always going to be something else that has to be done, and something else that you know we want to happen and isn't quite happening yet. And on the other side of it, I suppose it's not just about spelling that out, which is quite nice, but also thinking about exactly how do we get there. And how do you get people on board to that moment? You know, the climate debate in particular, there's been lots of different ways in which it has become more, more salient. Certainly climate protests have driven it up the agenda in terms of the public consciousness about these issues. Certainly the campaign has had a huge role in it. And now with this part of it, it's saying that actually for those people who are in middle England, who are today struggling, who own their own house, who end up being the swing voters, 
are also those who can say, actually, this is a plan I can get behind, that actually going for green makes my life cheaper. And so that is the way to, to do it and think about it. So, yes, I'm, I'm excited. Um, but again, you know, there will always be more to do. As always, cautious optimism for the New Economics podcast. I love it. I endorse it. Uh, Anne, what do you reckon? You also excited? I was thrilled to hear um, hear Labour making the green economy its priority and pushing that agenda out so loudly. It was really, really encouraging. I don't think it's yet ambitious enough. I don't think it yet faces the scale of what needs to be done. But I'm really happy that this is put at the top of the political agenda, because once it's at the top of the political agenda, we can have all the arguments about how much more needs to be done. And that's a lovely position to be in. We haven't even been able to discuss that because it's been so absent from the political agenda for so long. Certainly, I think that's that's absolutely the case, and and I I really enjoy uh, kind of the, the framing from both of you. I think it's really helpful around kind of celebrating where we've got to, and of course, always always pushing for more. I want to focus on that pushing for more for a second. So let's end by kind of looking into the future. We've heard about some really incredible campaigns and movements in this mini series, and people who are working kind of across the the political spectrum to reprogram the UK economy, from people working on strikes to social housing tenants, fighting for better homes. People are, as I say, kind of really pushing to address a lot of these challenges and, and they're winning as well. And, it, and it's great. So I wanted to end with some hope and talking about some of the big measures that you both think the government should take to support this change. Let's maybe start with you, Jeevan. There should be a looking at transferring our tax system from income towards wealth, especially given the huge increase in wealth we've seen at the top, absolutely uh, reforming our taxation system in that way. More broadly than that, I would say on the kind of, I suppose, on the on the spending side, I mean, the first thing is, actually, there are 2.6 million kids going hungry, more than 2.6 million now, actually. And there shouldn't be any kid in this country going hungry. Like no ifs, no buts, no exceptions. And the first priority of any government should be doing that. The second really is about investing in people. And that doesn't just mean um, education, which I think is important, but also recognition about the fact that actually like the future prosperity of this country depends on people doing well. So having a functioning health service, for example, is really important because then you're healthy and you're able to produce more later on. If you're suffering now, it's very difficult to do so. And finally, the investment in places that we've seen, you know, the Green New Deal as the idea is shaping out does look great, but let's actually get it done. And finally, actually, I will add uh, political reform is incredibly important. You know, one of the reasons we're the most economically centralised countries in the OECD is because we're the most politically centralised, because everything takes place in Westminster. You know, I used to work at the Treasury and it's it's an absurdity. Like the, you know, you're in your 20s and you're making these decisions about huge budgets, but you're in London. Like, how could you possibly know the priorities of the country? And all that ended up happening was basically... Uh, every decision is made to to benefit London. You know, you look at travel connections from MPs leaving Westminster, their constituencies, pretty good. Travelling between constituencies, pretty bad, right? That's a political problem and that has to change. There's a tendency on the left to kind of go, isn't everything awful? And, you know, there are things that aren't great. But also, like, in the broad sweep of history, there has been a huge amount of progress made since at least new 1950. You know, there was a period in the world where most people lived in poverty. Today, it's less than one in 10. 1950, we're at 80%. When I was born, about one in three people lived in poverty. It's now one in 10, extreme poverty. We've made huge progress and we can absolutely build a world where every single person thrives and where we have a planet 
and we have a have a planet that survives and we don't have it burned, like we can absolutely do that and we should be hopeful about that. And that doesn't mean just saying this is going to happen. It means, yeah, you have to fight for it, you have to do it, but it can also be done. And we've had a huge amount of successes you know, given you know, the broad sweep of where we've come from. So we should celebrate that and then push forward. Yeah, can I say that I too am optimistic. The reason I'm optimistic is that I have seen and there is history that shows us it's possible to change the world, to end a system of globalization and to restore uh, prosperity. Um, And that model was President Roosevelt's administration of the 1930s. He moved government from Wall Street to his democratically elected finance minister at the Treasury, if you like. He then restored power to the state to tackle unemployment, the financial crisis, but above all, an ecological crisis, which was the Dust Bowl. So I'm optimistic because I, I know that in history it has been done before and we can do it again. You know, we've got to have the kind of courage for transformation that the Roosevelt administration demonstrated in the 1930s. I think what's been so wonderful about this conversation is it's so clear that there is real progress being made and there's really good work being done. We've Yes, we've got a really long way to go and we shouldn't get complacent. Um, but I, I completely agree with you, Jeevan, that it's also um, important to, to look back and, and take a moment to celebrate how far we've come, um, which I know probably sounds like a trite way to end the series, but it feels true. <laughs> it really does. Um, Okay, brilliant. That is sadly all we've got time for on this episode of the New Economics Podcast and for the mini-series. Very sad, but we'll be back soon as always. Don't you worry, lovely listener. Jeevan Sander, thanks so much for joining me. If people want to find out more about your work, where can they go? What should they read? They should go onto Twitter. Oh, and also, I think I, when I produce it now, and maybe my website. Um, Yeah, go ahead, go crazy. (laughs) Okay, lovely. And Anne Pettifor, thank you again. Uh, Same question, how can people get more Anne Pettifor? Well, they can follow me on Twitter at Anne Pettifor, but also I've got a Substack post now called System Change, and I'd love people Mm. to subscribe to that. Lovely. Wow. You guys are so good at putting the things out there, Substacks here, and wow, very inspiring. Uh, That is it for today's New Economics podcast and for this mini-series. We hope that you found it interesting and inspiring. We certainly have. We'll be back in the new year with a brand new series. Uh, If you have enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at Neff on Twitter. The New Economics podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation, produced by Becky Malone and researched by Margaret Welsh. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay safe.